Well, uh, as we begin this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's inspired, inerrant, living, and active, invincible word to the head of the New Testament canon and to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 11. The 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Perhaps one of the most heartening and thrilling words that a person can ever hear are the words, you are invited. Have you ever felt that, that thrill of, uh, of joy, that uh, dawn of anticipation when someone invites you to join with them in something? Maybe you've experienced this as a child, you remember the first time that uh, you were invited perhaps to spend the night at a friend's house. Or you might think back to uh, the person whom you married and when you were first asked out on, on a date and the thrill it was to be invited to be with and spend time with that person. When I was in seminary, my beloved wife Sandra received in the mail an invitation to attend a royal wedding in England because her second cousin was marrying the Earl of Pembroke. And I can remember just how thrilling that was uh, for her, even when she knew that she couldn't afford to attend, just to get the invitation to such a grand event. Or maybe you've experienced one of those more awkward situations where you've been at school or you've been in a new church and you don't really know anyone there yet and just uh, felt that awkward moment of aloneness and silence and you wonder, is anyone going to talk to me? Am I going to make a friend here? And then someone comes along and smiles at you, sits down with you and invites you to, to come and to be with them and you experience the joy of being included of being invited, of being accepted. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to hear together the greatest invitation that's ever been given in the history of the world. It comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 11, starting in verse 28. We're going to read to verse 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, just jumping right in, my first point this morning is that this is a personal invitation. This is a personal invitation. Jesus says in verse 28, Come to me. So Jesus is inviting you to know him personally. Jesus says, come to me. You read through the Gospel of Matthew, and you read through the Gospel of Mark and Luke and John, and you find a chorus in the ministry of Jesus of these three words, come to me. He said, do not forbid them, but let the little children come to me. Jesus wants people to approach him. He wants people to come near to him. He, he's not interested in uh, keeping mankind at arm's length or, or uh, keeping people at a distance. Jesus Christ, he invites people to come to him. And who is he? He, he is the one in verse 27 here who reveals God. 
he says, if you look up in verse 27, all things, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and one other group of people. He says, no one knows God the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus Christ is absolute sovereign. He's king of heaven and earth. He, 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 he's absolutely in control over who gets to know God. You cannot get to know God unless Jesus chooses to reveal him to you. And the same one who is absolutely sovereign over who gets to know God and who doesn't says to all, come to me. Jesus didn't have a problem reconciling divine sovereignty with the free offer of the gospel to all people everywhere. And Jesus, in this invitation, he's doing what God has done throughout the whole Bible. You go back to the Old Testament, before it was clear that God was going to reveal himself in Jesus Christ. And you get to Isaiah 55, and you read of God saying there, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. You go to the very final chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, final passage of the Bible, and you find the Spirit and the Bride say, come. God is an inviting God. He, he wants to be approached. He, he's inviting people to come to him. He, he, he doesn't want people to be at a distance from him. If you are distant from God this morning, if you feel alienated from God this morning, it is not because God wants you to be distant from him. Jesus' words to you this morning and Jesus' word to the people of his own day was, come to me. And so one point that's, that's obvious here is that people are not close to God. If they were close to God, they wouldn't need to be invited to come close to God. Jesus is inviting people who are distant from God. When the Bible surveys and looks at humanity, it does not see a people who are naturally close to God. It sees a people who are naturally religious, but empty, devoid of a warm relationship with the living God. It sees people who seek to justify themselves through empty religion, but it does not see a people as naturally close to God. In fact, the words the Bible uses to describe people in relation to God is separated, alienated, strangers, without God, without hope in the world. There is a critical and terrible distance between mankind and God. Isaiah 59 tells us, your sins have separated you from God. And that is why you need an invitation. That's why you need to be invited to come to God. Who, who on their own would put it in their mind to approach God? Who, if they had any sense of the holiness of God, any sense of the sinfulness of man, who in their right mind would think, you know, I'm gonna, I want to get closer to him. That's as foolish as the moth 
thinking, I'm going to fly to the fire. You're, you're bound to be burned and consumed unless, unless he is inviting you. And the good news is he is. He is inviting you. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, if anything is clear, it's that God wants to be known. He has spoken to us. He has spoken to us through his creation. He has spoken to us through his prophets. And ultimately, fundamentally, he has spoken to us in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that creation itself declares the glory of God. That there's not a tree, not a river, not a star, not anything in all creation that does not say God is glorious. All of reality declares that God is and that God is glorious. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he wants you to get near to him. He wants you to come to him. Now, notice the way that Jesus deals with the distance. As we've seen, the invitation to God assumes that there is a distance, a distance between God and man. And the rest of Scripture bears that out, that there is that distance. There's this critical distance which, if it's not reconciled, will leave God in heaven and man in hell. That's the magnitude of that gulf, of that distance. And Jesus says something here. here. Here's how Jesus deals with the problem of the distance. He says, come to me. If you want to resolve the distance, you come to me. See, people have all kinds of different ways of dealing with that distance between God and man. Some people think that you need to go to some holy place or some holy city. You need to go to the Holy Land or you need to go to Mecca and, and these great pilgrimages are made at great expense. Or you uh, heard about some place where the Virgin Mary appeared in a turnip and, and so you need to go there to get close to God. You need to go to a special place. Well, there's this inclination all over mankind that you need to go to some special place or do some special something to get close to God. Some people think the way that you get close to God is to walk an aisle or to pray a sinner's prayer. Some people think that, that you get close to God by joining a church. Some people think that you get close to God by getting baptized or, or, uh, or um, you know, making a profession of faith. Some people think it's by emptying your minds. Others think it's by filling your minds with the right kinds of philosophy. Well, Jesus just breaks through all of that, steps into all of these theories of how to get close to God, and he says, come to me. There, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God, the Father, except through me, the Son. Come to me, he says. So what does Jesus mean when he says, come so I don't think he's simply calling the people to stand up and physically to, to walk closer to where Jesus is standing. And this is, this is a word to us today, we know. We, we couldn't uh, do that right now because we no longer know him according to the flesh. He's ascended to the right hand of God. So what he's talking about is having personal faith, having personal trust in him. Jesus said, and this is another one of those come to me passages. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. What does it mean to come to me? He goes on to say, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, so there's a coming that's like an eating, that's like a believing, that's like a taking. You, you think about the things that the Lord Jesus gives us to think about faith in him, like the Lord's Supper. You take the bread and you put it in your mouth. You take the cup and you put it to your lips. Coming to, to Jesus is a, a personal application and trust of who he is and what he has accomplished. And so what he's calling for here is personal faith in him alone. Now, it wasn't entirely clear to these disciples and to the people of his day exactly who he was in every way. But it is clear to us, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God Almighty, truly God and truly man. He is the one who came and lived a perfect life for sinners. He lived the good life that, that you could never live and have failed to live. He died in the place of sinners and, and put his life forward as the sacrifice that you needed to pay for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And he invites you today, come to me. So this is a personal invitation. My second point this morning is that this is a personal invitation to a particular people. It's to a particular people. Who does Jesus invite here? And in one sense... He does not invite everybody, does he? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, who are these people? They're, they're not united by their social background. They're not united by the country they come from. They're not united by the color of their skin. They're not united by their education. But they are united by a common experience. All of them labor and are worn out. What does that mean? Where, where does that come from in the Bible? Well, there are three places in the Bible that I can think of where this idea of working and getting worn out comes from, and they all come from sin. The first is Genesis chapter 3. God, he created the world perfect over six days, and then on the seventh day, God rests and mankind is invited into that rest and joins him, enjoying God's perfect rest. They're, they're given anything in creation except for the fruit of this one tree. Uh, they get to walk with God face to face in the cool of the day. But, but Eve and, and Adam, they, they take the fruit, they eat, and God says to Adam, as part of the curse for disobeying him, he says, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. You're going to work, you're going to sweat, and you're going to die. You're going to labor and be heavy laden as a result of sin. The second place I see this in the Bible, this idea of, of laboring and having a heavy burden, is from a sin-stained conscience. That there's no more miserable place to be on the earth than in a mind with a guilty conscience. Men, men have been burned at the stake with joy because they had a good conscience. 
And men have had everything they ever thought they wanted in this life, and yet a guilty conscience will destroy the enjoyment of it all. That the sunniest day, the sweetest kids, the nicest spouse cannot be enjoyed by the conscience that feels God's righteous frown. And you can work all day long to get better and do religion and to pray more and read more and do more. But if the conscience is not cleansed, you can work and work and work and and you will only wind up more heavy laden. So listen to the sound of a guilty conscience from Psalm 32. When I kept silent, when I didn't confess my sins... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And listen to Psalm 38. Again, the guilty conscience. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh. Because of your indignation, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. I am feeble and crushed. There's a crippling pain in a guilty conscience. And Jesus speaks to the guilty conscience when he says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. You're laboring to get better, but it isn't diminishing your burden. The burden only increases in the one who's working to get better without coming to Jesus. The third way that the Bible talks about laboring and being heavy laden is perhaps even worse than than the one I just described. The third way scripture talks about laboring and being heavy laden comes not just from being guilty under God's law, but it comes from an exasperating legalism, an exasperating legalism. Legalism can make the the conscience a place of torture. In Jesus' day, like our day today, the legalism was rampant. Remember how Jesus indicts the legalists in Luke chapter 11. He says in Luke eleven forty six, 46, Woe to you, lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Do you, do you remember, those of you who've read uh, the wonderful allegory by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, do, do you remember in the opening paragraph how it begins? It begins as Bunyan describes this dream that he's having. And he says that in his dream, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. And the city in which he lived was the city of destruction. And the book in his hands was the word of God. And the burden on his back was the burden of sin. And as he read the book, he began to cry out, What must I do to be saved? And he's seeking for an answer. And as he seeks, he meets a man named Evangelist. And Evangelist gives him a parchment. And the parchment says, Fly from the wrath to come. And the man asks, Where shall I fly? 
And Evangelist points out yonder shining light. And he says, if you follow that light, you'll, you'll come to a gate called wicket gate or straight or narrow gate. You'll come to that gate, and if you go through that gate, you'll, you'll find release from your burden. And so the man, he begins his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And as, his go, as he's going along his way, his family is behind him, calling on him to turn around and come back. He puts his fingers in his ears and he cries, life, life, eternal life, as he runs for that narrow gate. But along the way, he meets another man. And the man's name is Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman asks the man, why is he so upset? And the man says it's because he has this great burden on his back. And he tells him how he's headed for the wicked gate. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman does everything in his power to persuade the man not to go to that narrow gate. Because it's such a hard and difficult road. And he says, instead, you should go this other way. There's a village called Morality. And in that village of morality, there's a man named Legality. And if you go to that city of morality, Mr. Legality will be able to release you of your burden. And so the man asks where the city of morality is. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man, he points out a high hill off in the horizon and says, just you go by that high hill and the first house you come to will be Mr. Legality's house. And so this burdened Man, he, he takes a detour, he heads by the high hill, but when he gets to that hill, he recognizes that this hill is Sinai. It is Mount Sinai, and it's hanging over his head, looming over him, and, and, and he's afraid that it will fall upon him and crush him, and lightning is flashing from this mountain. He begins to see that he cannot release himself of his burden through morality or through legality because Sinai is an even greater burden and it will crush him. The law is a burden. And when you bear it as an attempt to earn your favor with God, to release that burden of sin, the law, it just becomes a greater burden itself. It adds to your burden. And being under that burden of sin, under that burden of legalism, it will make you labor and be heavy laden. And all who labor and are heavy laden are invited to come to Jesus Christ, to come to Jesus. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this is a personal invitation to a particular people. And my third point this morning is that this, this personal invitation to a particular people, it comes with the promise of rest. If you come to Jesus, he promises that he will give you rest. It reminds me of what St. Augustine said in his confessions. He said, Lord, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Rest is such a, a rich and biblical theme. I wish I had the time this morning to trace it out in all of its fullness and glory, but we would go way past our time. So I'm just going to give you the short version. And, and let me begin by saying that there are two great works ascribed to our God in the Bible. Two great works of God. Creation and redemption. 
And when you read the book of, of Revelation and get a glimpse into the very throne room of heaven, you see that the angels and the saints, they're offering constant, unceasing praise to God for these two great works. So you see in Revelation 4.11 that they're all saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and, and God, to receive glory and honor and power for, because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's praising God for his great work of creation. And then you see Revelation 5, 9, the very next chapter, that they're also saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's praising him for his great work of redemption. And the whole story of the Bible is the story of these two divine works, creation and redemption. And the concept of rest, well, that is integral to both works because after each divine work came divine rest. So you remember in Genesis 2 how it says that on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this divine rest, which Adam and Eve entered into and enjoyed, it was broken by sin, by the fall. And, and so this was when God stopped resting and got up and went back to work. And he began the work of redemption. Declaring in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, would, would reverse the curse. Something that, that Jesus says in John chapter 5 is very illuminating. The scene is Jesus after he's healed this lame man on the Sabbath day. He's being persecuted by the legalists, by the Pharisees, for working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, my father is working until now, and I am working. My, my father is not resting, Jesus says. My father is laboring. He is working. But, but if God rested at the end of creation on that seventh day where it never says, and there was morning and there was evening the seventh day, it was, it was an ongoing day of rest, then, then how can it be now to be said of him that he is working, that he's laboring? Well, because Genesis 3.15 is nothing less than the announcement that God has gone back to work. And yet this new work, the, the work of redemption, it is forever finished at the cross. The words of our Lord Jesus from the cross, it is finished. That refers to that second great work of God. God saw how good that work was and he was perfectly satisfied. The, the clear proof of just how satisfied God was is proven in the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of the one who performed that great work. That the father not only raised his son from the grave, he also exalted him to the position of a highest 
uh, authority and power over heaven and earth. And after finishing his work, our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, into the most holy place itself. And then what did he do? He sat down. He rested. Why? For the same reason that the Father rested in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. He sat down and rested because he was completely finished with his work. He entered into his eternal divine rest. And God's final work cannot be undone by sin or by anything else. It is a work in which God rests for all eternity. It is finished. God, through Jesus, accomplishes the work that inaugurates his promised end times eschatological rest so that what was signified in the Old Testament Sabbath is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's in this this final rest that the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of redemption are reunited. And this is why, as Bogdan read for us earlier, Hebrews 4 says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so back to our passage in Matthew. What Jesus is promising here, it is huge. It's not just physical rest, as nice as that is. It is the great fulfillment of all of God's promises, all of God's purposes in creation and in redemption. It is his divine rest, which is fundamentally, ultimately, eternal salvation, eschatological rest, walking with God in the cool of the day, and not even a possibility that that rest could ever come to an end. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, so that's the deep and and glorious biblical theology of rest in a nutshell. But now let's see where the rubber meets the road in our lives as followers of Jesus. How does this work out in our lives practically? What's the plain, clear path to walking in this rest? And I want to say three things before we close. The, the plain path of walking and rest is the path of obedience to Jesus, obedience under Jesus, and obedience in Jesus. And, and you see this in the final two verses of our passage. So the next thing Jesus says, he's basically unpacking for us what it means to come to him. And he says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you. And for those who are unfamiliar with yokes, a yoke was a farming tool, something that an animal or perhaps a person would wear to help them carry a burden. So Jesus says, are you burdened? Come and take my burden. So he's not inviting you to some kind of lawless life. He's not inviting you to what's called antinomianism, right? A life without law. He's inviting you to a life of obedience, which is a life of rest and a life of freedom. You know, this is where our culture today has got things so backwards because it views freedom in purely autonomous terms. Freedom is not freedom from moral commands. Freedom is not autonomous and individualistic 
and self-serving, freedom doesn't mean that we are free to, to follow our lusts. Freedom means that we have the power to love. Freedom means that we are liberated to glorify God, to do what is right. Who has freedom like that? God does. Right? God has that kind of freedom. God always does what is right. God always desires to do what is right. In fact, God cannot, it's an amazing statement, God cannot do what is wrong. Scripture says God cannot lie. God cannot sin. Is God not free? He is free, isn't he? His freedom is amazing and it's glorious. It's the kind of freedom that we are going to have when Jesus returns in glory, where we will always want to do what is right. So freedom isn't the ability to choose to do what's wrong. It is the power to do what's right. Oh, to have that kind of freedom. And those who are in Christ, we do have it now in part. And one day we will experience total freedom and total rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And the commentator D.A. Carson, he helps us in his excellent commentary on Matthew by saying, the yoke put on animals for carrying heavy loads is a metaphor for the discipline of discipleship. If Jesus is not offering the yoke of the law, neither, says Carson, is he offering freedom from all constraints. So the current culture is busy proving to us that freedom from all constraints is really bondage, it's slavery to your lusts. And Jesus is not offering freedom from constraints. He is offering freedom to follow him, freedom to obey him. Take his yoke upon you. Take, take upon you a life of discipleship, a life of following Jesus, a life of obedience to your King Jesus Christ. There's no rest without repentance. It's not there to be found. So you come to Jesus as the forgiver of your sins, as the lover of your soul. And then you ask him, Lord, help me to follow you. Help me to obey you. And is there anything freer than obeying God? The plain path of rest is the path of taking the yoke of Jesus upon yourself. The second thing, and, and this to me is just fantastically encouraging. The plain path of rest is the path of obeying under Jesus. Who Jesus is matters to rest. So look again what he says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That is, take discipleship, take obedience, take my teaching. For I am, this is the Son of God speaking, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am gentle and lowly in heart. So, so the one to whom you are submitting is gentle and lowly in heart, right to the very core of his being. What does it mean to be gentle and lowly in heart? It, it means basically you can obey me because I'm not going to demean you or exasperate you or make you feel worthless or like a failure. You, you don't have to walk on eggshells while, while you're trying to learn to follow me. I'm not a proud know-it-all with a harsh disposition. Have you ever been under a drill sergeant? Jesus is not like that. Have you ever been under a proud boss who was a know-it-all and made you feel dumb because you didn't know it all? Jesus is not like that. 
Have you ever been under a harsh parent who was never satisfied with your behavior, always just pointed out your faults and made you feel like a constant failure? Jesus is not like that. Have you ever had a husband with a short temper that would just fly off the handle? Jesus is not like that. Jesus is actually someone you can come and rest under as you learn to obey him. And that's so important because discipleship is actually a very vulnerable proposition. To to be a disciple means that you're constantly admitting that you don't know it all. And you're constantly doing something that's very uncomfortable. You're constantly changing. To be a disciple makes the soul vulnerable. It's constantly saying, "I, I don't know. I don't know. I need to learn. And I'm always changing. And those are the two things that make us vulnerable in life. We avoid change, and we avoid situations where we don't know anything. I would much rather talk to you guys about Greek grammar than about fixing up my car, because I have absolutely no idea how to fix up my car. And I don't like the feeling that I get in in my heart when someone next to me knows a lot about fixing my car and, and makes me feel ignorant and small for not knowing how to fix my car. It's a vulnerable place to be, to be constantly admitting you you don't know and you need to change. So so you take the most vulnerable place that a person can be, always learning, always changing, and you put on top of that a, a drill sergeant or an exasperating father figure and you create recipes for disaster for the human soul. The person who's trying to change the person who's realizing they need to learn, and then they get a, a sort of drill sergeant view of God, well, they'll, they'll just try to outwardly conform while inwardly they're all messed up. And, and if you get a, a patronizing view of God where he's just sort of you know, putting up with you, but he's not really gentle, he's not really lowly in heart, you cannot rest there. You cannot learn there. You cannot have rest for your soul under anyone other than the true, biblical, risen, living Jesus. You have to have a true understanding of Jesus as as truly gentle and lowly in heart so that when you don't know what to do, you can come to Jesus. He will not reproach you. He will teach you. He's humble. The humble God. It's just an unbelievable thought. He does know it all, and yet he's not a know-it-all. What if you're weak and just limping along in your Christian life, and you're always seeking to obey, but it's a struggle, and it's just very weak? Jesus says, a bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not quench, and I love this, until I bring justice to victory. So so King Jesus is bringing justice to victory, but along the way, not only one reed does not get broken and not one smoldering wick will get put out. He's doing this massive, redemptive overhaul of all creation into a new creation, and yet that flickering candle that he holds next to him never goes out. He is gentle, and he's lowly in heart. And isn't the reason that he's gentle and lowly one of the reasons that he can say things to us like, well done, good and faithful servants? Can you imagine that? At the end of your life, hearing those words from the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that is humble. Right? That, that is gentle and, and lowly, so kind. It's going to fill us with wonder and with awe when we hear those words. He says to his heavenly father in John 17 about his disciples, they have kept your word. You know their lives. It was not perfect obedience, but that is a gentle savior. Are you living? Maybe the reason you're not resting is because you're not living under the risen biblical Jesus Christ. That the plain path to rest is to obey under the biblical Jesus. And then lastly this morning, the plain path to rest is to obey in Jesus. Verse 30 simply says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus doesn't tell us why, but the rest of the Bible does. Why is obedience to Jesus so easy? Well, why is obedience to Jesus so light? Two reasons, and they both flow from the fact that you are in him, in Christ. You're already accepted as perfectly righteous in God's sight, in him. You are already what scripture calls justified. You have been declared by God to be righteous. His perfect life was credited to your account so that God now looks upon you and he sees the riches of Jesus Christ's righteousness, which means when you get up in the morning and start to obey, you are not obeying to get in and you are not obeying to keep yourself in. You are obeying because you're already in. You're not obeying to get accepted or to stay accepted, but because you have already and eternally been accepted. Why is it so easy to obey Jesus? Because you are not obeying to make the grade. You're obeying Jesus because Jesus has made the grade for you already, and you are in him. You're found in him by faith alone. You're not learning how to be a good husband so that you can get into heaven. You're not learning how to be a good wife so that you can get into heaven, but you're doing these things because you're trying to reflect the love that you've already been given. Do it with fear and with trembling, but do it with the knowledge that God has already received you fully in Christ. Why is his yoke easy and his burden light? Because he has justified sinners in Jesus Christ. He has already declared them righteous. You're not under the bondage of trying to get accepted or working to stay in. You are already and and forever embraced by God the Father with the eternal embrace that he has for his beloved and perfect son. Final point, the second truth about being in him that makes it easy and light to obey him is that what we really want to do is to obey Jesus. That's what Christians already, deep down, want to do. You used to choose sin every time because that is what you wanted to do. But now, as my old mentor used to put it, God has changed your chooser. Right? So, so you have new affections for God and a new inclination to want to follow Jesus, to want to obey him. It's a delight to submit to his majesty, the king, your Lord. You want to do that. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.24 that we put on the new self. 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we are a new creation. Yes, the flesh holds us down, and yes, we wrestle against the world and against the devil, but who we really are fundamentally are people who want to love, people who want to sacrifice, people who want to be like Jesus, who want to glorify our Father in heaven. And if you don't ever want to glorify God, if you, if you don't ever want to be like Jesus, you're just not a Christian yet. Christians may, may weakly want to be like Jesus. They, they may weakly want to glorify God. But true believers want to be like Jesus and want to glorify God. We have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, God himself indwelling us. We have the the law written on our hearts now. We're changed. It's internal motivation. And so his yoke is easy and his burden is light, even though he demands self-crucifixion. It is easy and light because we are not doing it to make the grade and we are not doing it against what we deep down want to do. So this is a personal invitation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me. And it's an invitation for people who are weary and laboring and heavy laden under the disastrous effects of the fall, under the oppressive burden of sin, and under the tyrannical burden of legalism. And to all who do, who come to Jesus, he promises his divine rest, the rest that is a result of his finished work of redemption and all who enter into that rest enter into it by faith alone and and not by a dead faith but by a living faith a faith that delights to follow Jesus that delights to obey him not perfectly in this life and not to earn salvation nor to maintain salvation but freely because we love him who first loved us and who gives us rest true rest for our souls for he is gentle and lowly in spirit and in heart his yoke is easy his burden it is light let us pray our gracious God and heavenly father we thank you for your living words of life which are a comfort to those who are weary and afflicted We thank you for this wonderful invitation to come to Jesus. May we continue to come to Jesus every day. And may we continue to find rest for our souls in him. And may you give us opportunities to extend this glorious invitation to others by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.